Welcome to The Right Podcast, a podcast providing innovative and inspirational dental education to dentists, specialists, and their teams worldwide. Each fortnight, we deliver relevant content covering procedures, educational opportunities, and interviews with rock stars from the dental world. As we explore the successes and failures of dentistry, learn practical tips and expert advice to help you become a better dental professional. Thank you very much, Dale. It's great to uh, to interview you, and uh, we've been we've been uh, connected via the great world of Facebook for some time now, and met up a few times. So it's really I've never really got to interview interview you, so it's good to catch up finally. Yes, thank you for having me. So, uh, <clears throat> what's been happening in your little neck of New York? My little neck of the woods. Uh, I don't actually know. I, I sort of stay uh, very uh, encapsulated in my own little life of going to work, doing a lecture, coming home, and so there's many changes. Yeah. You're lecturing every day then? <laughs> uh, well, I used to lecture more often because I was in a residency program teaching once or yeah. twice a week, and I left the residency. So now I just lecture for continuing education outside for practicing and licensed dent- dentists. So yeah. it is very different to lecture to the dental residents who are one year out of dental school than to lecture to people doing this stuff for five or 10 or 25 years, uh, especially since I have only been doing it for 10 years. Mm-hmm. But so do you, get, do you get told that you're too young to be a specialist? Yeah, people actually ask me all the time, are you, are you old enough? to be my doctor or why are you lecturing to us i've been a hygienist for 35 years and i'm 38 so only four years ago i was able to say 35 years i'm not even 35 years old (laughs) now listen here young man i've been doing perio wrong for 40 years and who are you to come and tell me this (laughs) well it's usually that they come and say Why is it that I've been doing this for 22 years and I've never heard anything? I've never heard of this before. When did they come out with this? And I say, uh, the paper was published in 1961. This one's from 1981. And they say, so this is not new. And I say, no, it's not new. But to be fair, so many things that uh, you know I've heard about published more recently they've still been published before i even got to dental school you know i mm-hmm. didn't i didn't hear of tarnow until uh, the end of dental school when i started at perio there was chitter chatter that he was coming over to columbia from nyu and then i started reading his papers and no oh, 1981 the 1990s and i'm like 1992 1992 was the goal for I, you know i graduated elementary school in 1995 so yeah. how come this is new to me? Don't but, worry, Celeb- celebrity chefs do the same thing. They're always rating recipes from the 1500s and then they, they throw them up on their program now to look like it's cutting edge stuff. So yeah. we're just chefs, the, we're just being chefs. The circle, the circle yeah. of life. I think to be fair that some of the papers that were published in 1961 didn't get shared around the internet very well. <laughs> right, Abraham Lincoln once said that uh, don't believe everything you read about me on the internet. 
I haven't said all those quotes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think because Einstein was Einstein was quoting him all the time <clears throat> in memes, in cat memes for sure. <clears throat> well, they had dial-up. They had only dial-up. So yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the, the cat could have died before you could diagnose it on Doctor Google back in those days. <clears throat> so, how, so where does your passion come from? Why are you so hectically teaching? Well, what actually do you teach? Are you a periodontist, or do you? Go I'm a periodontist. A much richer term, implantologist. So, <laughs> I even wrote on my shirt. Yeah, um, they can't see your chest on the, on the well, podcast. Well, for you, for you. Just, yeah. I'm yeah. not showing you my okay. chest. So for those of you who chest. aren't watching this, 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 uh, we'd have my to pixelate scrubs. that bit of that bit of video. He was he was <laughs> <laughs> he was showing me his man chest. The trouble in New York area, which is where I work, New York and New Jersey and the upper upper East Coast of the United States, is that. Uh, it's difficult to identify yourself, what you do. Patients don't understand. Oftentimes they'll say, oh, are you the oral surgeon? And they'll say, no, I'm a periodontist. And they say, periodontist, you do I mean the orthodontist, say, don't they? Orthodontist. Right. So then we have to have a little Greek, a Greek lesson, what ortho means and perio. And then there's a lot of G GPs who are doing implants. And I don't mean to say that, that that's a problem. It's just it becomes difficult sometimes to identify exactly who I am, what do I do, and why do I do it, and why do they need me if the other guy does the same thing. So I have mm -hmm. to give a two-minute uh, discussion uh, on what a periodontist is and what a periodontist used to be, and then they say, oh, my cousin's a prostodontist. He does implants. Uh, and I say, you know, how long do you want this discussion to be? <laughs> mm -hmm. So what's your two minutes feel? The two minutes is that uh, times change and people become more motivated to do more of the work so that they could, they could oversee and be involved in more interesting and varied aspects of dentistry. So if you're not interested in uh, doing something, you don't have to do it. But if you become interested, uh, the surgeons start restoring their implants and the restorative dentists start placing the implant surgically. And you can't do that alone because how are you going to do an implant without also taking out teeth? You'll lose half the cases. And then how are you supposed to take out teeth without grafting? So you can't really bleed into the other discipline without grabbing a very large chunk. But you may not realize that right away. Everyone says, oh, I, I just do this simple implants. Uh, it's possible, but in my mind, those people end up stop doing implants or start doing the grafting and then soft tissue and then, uh, you know, scalpeling skills and suturing skills. I remember when I was uh, just starting out in the residency. I didn't I have much to say. Uh, just a boy. You're going to say, uh, no, no, I remember when I'm I was just a boy on my puppy's lap. <laughs> I'm still just a boy. <laughs> yeah. well, You're not even old enough to be a periodontist. <laughs> right. My, my bar mitzvah is next week. <laughs> so I told, I told the resident, I mean, I don't know really what I was contributing back then because I think I had graduated perio, whatever, a year earlier. But we were doing a crown lengthening. And this kid, he wasn't conceited, but he came to me and said, you know, you know, Dale, about two months ago, I was conceited enough that I'm not going to ask you to help me. Because crown lengthening, come on. I did, I did three of them in school. I know what I'm doing. But 
I figured, you know what, let me, let me swallow my pride and I'm going to work with you. The periodontist, let's see what, what there is to perio because I, otherwise I could do this with my GP faculty, which I did. So we did the surgery. Uh, he enjoyed it. I gave him pointers. I lean over his shoulder and I pointing things out. And then I sat down for 10 seconds to show him this. Then he did it. And afterwards he came over and said, Dr. Rosenbach, I want to tell you something. That was really great experience, but I want to tell you what blew me away. I said, go for it. He said, the thing I learned most from you had nothing to do with crown or lengthening. It's the thing that I took for granted the most. The suturing. I thought we were done. We had already spent whatever, 25 minutes cutting and you're helping me hold my hand and all these details. Okay, I picked stuff up, flapping. But when we were done, I thought, okay, now I put the two stitches in and we're done. This is not part of the procedure and we'll be done in 30 seconds. But we spent like, not 10 minutes, but a good six minutes of you showing me this and showing me that and telling me, don't do these six things and make sure you remember these four things. And when we were done, I said, wow, the thing I took for granted the most, the suturing, which is not something I really thought was part of the procedure. I thought when you're done with the procedure, you have a hole in the man's mouth because you cut him open. So let's just quickly put this back together so he's not leaking on his way to the bus. Oh, well, you, you run out of oil, you know, mixing the stuff's right. leaking. <laughs> and you made me realize, Dr. Rosenbach, that, that no, this, we're still in the middle. We're still in the middle of the procedure, and there's still things to do, and there's still wrong ways to do it, and there's still right ways to do it, and there's still neutral ways to do it that four different people will do four different things. That I never would have appreciated, and that was my favorite part of the procedure. And I was so glad that I took it to you. And, and yeah, and I wonder if he's going to be listening to this uh, <coughs> podcast. But Yeah, then he'll send you a message on Facebook saying, I didn't exactly say that. <laughs> but, you it know, it's very, it's very interesting. It's very interesting, this, because uh, many of our procedures rely tremendously on good and rapid primary closure. And... Primary closure, you know, you do a bone graft, it's success a lot of the time depends on how good your primary closure is. Or you do a soft tissue graft and stability of tissues uh, determines the success. And, and all of these things are heavily dependent on the suturing. And suturing is a little bit like, it's like landing a plane because it's, it's almost, it's not the most important part, but it's very important and it's the bit that you do when you're tired. At the end of the procedure, you're more likely to be tired and kind of mentally drained and just want to get things done and get the patient out the door uh, and submit their insurance, I guess, in, in your state. Uh, <clears throat> and so, you, so you're doing something that's tremendously important and you're doing it at the part of the procedure where you're the least able to perform. Uh, well, I tend to go slow. I tend to give myself an extra at least 15 minutes, if not half an hour for all surgeries. I don't make nearly as much money as I can because I don't squish the day full of 10 surgeries. I only do three or so, maybe four. So I have the time and I'm, I have the, you pronounce it leisure or leisure over there? Uh, I don't really care. You don't care? Well, no. I have the leisure. 
Let's let's say and it both ways all through. So I think that through this podcast we should pronounce it both ways, so we can set off a few obsessive compulsive time bombs. Yeah. <laughs> and can you can you just step up for a moment and get that picture behind you and just put it like two degrees from level. Yeah, no, actually don't do that because I won't see it. It's on the podcast. I just want those of you who are obsessive compulsive right now to imagine a large picture frame hanging on his wall and it's one degree off level. Just as you fall asleep tonight, think of this. <laughs> We're terrible people. So, so where did this passion come from? Well, I, I'm a very particular person and I like, but I'm, but I'm not lost in my particularism. I enjoy being particular. So I could shut it off and I could put it on. I really enjoy putting it on. How long did it, how long did it take to learn the off switch? Um, I think I always had it. I really, I really look at passion as this like pedantic passion that you might, you might call it uh, very particular. Uh, I look at it somewhat like comedy where you're like, you could break the fourth wall mm -hmm. and you could be funny always, but you're not always on stage. And sometimes it's annoying if you're the guy, well, maybe not sometimes, maybe always. If you're the guy who always is cracking the joke, it's, it's very funny, but then it gets old, even if you're hilarious. Mm -hmm. So too, being particular gets old much quicker than comedy. But when you're, when you're cutting someone <laughs> So up, you're saying there's not a stand-up particular club for people who like to do particular stand-up. Right. I know people, I know people that, are, that are particular uh, all the time. And I try to distance myself from them. And I say, whoa, whoa, that, that's not me because they don't have an off switch. Uh, but I think it's important to be able to put it on uh absolutely there are people who don't know how to shut it off but there's also people who either have trouble putting it on or they think that there's not on off they think that you're either this way or not that way and they say i'm, I'm not particular and i try to tell them i think it's critical in dentistry to be able to have that side because mm -hmm. otherwise otherwise how could how could you do these particular things they they just seem so mundane and you're being way too uh, pedantic. And I, mm. I remember the first time I saw Tarnell lecturing at Columbia. Man, he, he spent like 30 minutes on one slide. That's, his, that's one of his uh, trademarks that you look <laughs> at your watch and it's like half an hour or 45 minutes. And he's still on the same you know, photograph of this ridiculously large tooth embrasure tooth the papilla's missing and he's just going on and on and you're like wow well, i've never been in a lecture does this guy have three slides in his hour and a half lecture and, you're, and then he's like oh we ran out of time next <laughs> come back next time we'll get the slide three <laughs> well you, you know that a presentation isn't about slides so that you know well, it takes as, time soon, as soon as you as soon as you uh start being worried about slides, then it becomes a slide reading contest, not a <laughs> presentation. So right. the, 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 I think that the term particular, you know, you, you can use many, many terms for this and some of them are more popular than others. And so I, I prefer the word attention to detail because it seems more trendy and kind of uh, uh, smoother than particular. 
Well, if you're <laughs> going to use uh, an adjective, right? Attention to detail would be like, uh, he has attention to detail, but what is he? And people like to say, is he this? So I say, I'm not that. I'm yeah, particular. I but I'm that particular. Was very nice. That was a very nice demonstration of being particular right there. <laughs> I think I just reeled him in on my big hook. <laughs> so uh, where did you do did you do a general dental degree or did you do a degree where you specialized immediately or how, how did how did your training work? Uh, so that's a great question. In general, the way it works in the United States is you go to college for four years. So you yeah get a liberal arts and broad education and you read novels and you learn math and all, all that stuff. And then you decide what you want to do for a living because you could barely get a job after yeah. college. So then I decided, oh, I'm going to go to dental school. So in dental school, which is four years, you learn all the disciplines, except for ortho. You have a course in ortho. They teach you that it's harder to regain space than it is to maintain space. But they say that every single day. That's basically the entire lecture. And yeah, then when you graduate, it's the general dentist. You know nothing about ortho. Yeah. You I have think to really there, go there's into a ortho. Secret, there's a secret right. It's, uh, it's a secret. Yeah. It's a secret. Um, but yeah, you do a little bit of perio, and you do a little bit of restorative, and then you have your fixed class and your removable class and your general dental class, which they call the you know, class one and class two and class three and class four intracoronal restorations. And then you have your RPD class and your, and then you have the interdisciplinary and then you have your, you know, your obviously your gross anatomy and your biochemistry and all that stuff. Um, I remember when I was in second year dental school, uh, that's when we had the, the secondary, like the more advanced perio lectures, but it was still very much undergraduate perio. So the focus, the focus on like year one class was all about scaling and replaning and all these, what at the time were like wacky diagnoses, you can't even wrap your mind or, or remember what the words are. Everything is severe and generalized and you get lost. And then the next year it's, oh, we already taught you scaling and replaning. Now we're gonna talk about what it means to refer to the periodontist. And you have mm -hmm. your one wall and your two wall defects like I was just discussing with Thomas King today mm -hmm. on the RIPE and grafting a little bit and how to, what, what a membrane means and what's GBR and what's GTR. But as a dental student, unless you're, at least where I went to school, unless your dad or your uncle or your sister is a periodontist, you, mm -hmm. you really despise perio. No one in my entire class of 88 people went into perio uh, other than me. And the year above me, the one, the one or two girls, the year, the two girls a year ahead of me, one of them, her father's a periodontist. And I think the other one was somehow became a periodontist. So the year after you, that, how did you buck the trend, Dale? Come on, tell me how you bucked the trend. Well, you went against the grain. I, I used to hang out in the, I used to hang out in the, in the postgraduate uh, clinics because when you're a, when you're a dental student in the undergraduate, the first two years versus upperclassmen, uh, you're not in the clinic. But I would hang out in the clinic and I would see all these amazing things that they would be doing in perio. And I said, what is this? And they said, this is perio. And they laughed at me and they said, you think I'm scaling and root planning all day? That's for, 
that's for you guys. I'm doing surgery. We're, we're cutting up and we have blood and guts. And I said, this is amazing. And then I said to myself, I want to do this. So I went back, obviously, to the up underclassmen, the lower classmen classes, and they would talk about stuff, but I would be so interested, and I would say to everyone who wanted it, no, oh, this is what I'm interested in. I'm going to be going for perio. And they said, going for perio? Don't you see who the faculty members are? They're a bunch of losers. All they talk about is two-millimeter probing depth or two... Three, four, two millimeters recession. What's two millimeters recession plus two millimeters? How much attachment loss? Do you know how to add two and two? And you're like, uh, this is what you want to do for the rest of your life? And I say, no, no, no. This is not perio. This is, this is a very distorted view. But they didn't know, and they wouldn't believe me. And then I actually just had lunch yesterday with a good friend of mine who was perio and he did peri he was a dental student while i was perio at columbia so we didn't go to dental school together because i switched i went to new jersey dental school for dental school and then when i did perio i switched to columbia uh mm-hmm. and he was a dental yeah. school student there and then he became a periodontist and he told me that uh you know i would you i don't know if you know but i was looking up to you you were the one doing perio and then i went <clears> to <throat> i had dinner two weeks ago with another perio friend of mine who was one year behind me in dental school. And he told me a story. He's like, Dale, I don't know if you remember, but I was walking in the hallway once and you were standing next to the perio clinic. And I said, oh, what are you doing here? What are you doing? What are you doing in life? Like, how's dentistry going? And you told me, oh, uh, his name is Kenneth. I said, oh, Kenneth, I'm going to do perio. And he's like, perio? Are you drunk? Perio is for losers. And I said, no, no, no. Come look what perio is. The surgery, the cutting, the stitching. And he's like, no, something's wrong here. That's ridiculous. But then he thought I was a level-headed guy with my head screwed on right. He looked into it, and then he ended up becoming a periodontist. Because you really do get a very distorted perspective of what perio is. If you don't know any surgery, you don't know anything past you know, phase one therapy, and you're like, this is what you want to do for the rest of your life? Gracie Scaler? So I think that was my to- journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I was just thinking that this uh, this sounds like um, one of the best periodontics evangelism seminars that I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> Next year, when your state is saturated with periodontic students, and soon they'll be overrunning, they'll be buying out Starbucks to start up on the corners. <laughs> well, You'll be going, no, 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 it's just scaling. It's just scaling of teeth and two millimeter pockets. That's all it is. <laughs> Right, it's it's you definitely take a something leaf. you don't understand. Yeah, you, you you need to take this a uh, bit more seriously and and go in there and say, look, it's it's very difficult. Uh, you wouldn't understand, and then just have one lecture that you give for the entire year, so that and finish up with, and here's my referral pad. <laughs> There's definitely a big disconnect, and <clears throat> it's it it becomes a problem when the GPs who are not periodontists graduate they remain gps and they sort of don't know what the periodontist is for they think you're the faculty member from dental school who's the loser who i don't know didn't know how to carve occlusal anatomy so you Mm -hmm. figured you want to scale all day and you know times have changed but yeah 
it's possible. Uh, actually, for, the part of it is also part of it is also that the where you did your perio training because uh, uh, having travelled around quite a bit, the some of the American perio schools I think adopted the much more surgical approach much earlier than say uh, in the UK or Australia. So so. Uh, <clears throat> In my early years as a referring dentist, there wasn't a lot of, you know, grafting of three-wall sockets. I mean, sure, that was a long time ago and, the, and there was less less of that done. But I think also the, the training in general, uh, particularly in the, the northeastern United States, was very heavily surgical, perhaps a little bit earlier. So that might be partly why people don't know what you do or did or did do. Uh, right. There's also a tremendous... Uh, you know, overlap or relatedness of this medical legal issue that uh, mm -hmm. we're such a litigious society in the U.S. Uh, that if you know if you, go to if you go to McDonald's and the coffee mm -hmm. is hot and you burn yourself, you sue them, even though the coffee is supposed to be hot. So for sure, if you could get sued for making hot coffee, you could you could uh, totally get sued because you didn't operate at the highest level of the scope of therapy. So mm -hmm. most GPs, I mean, there's a tremendous barrier. Like yesterday, someone posted on Ripe this endo case, and I wanted to understand what I was reading. And the guy mentioned AH. And I said, you know, I'm ignorant here. What's AH? He said it as though it should be obvious. And he's like, oh, it's mm -hmm. some cement resin filler. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting there saying, okay, I, it's not a bunch of letters now. It's at least some words. But, but frankly, I don't even know what that means. I haven't done endo in 10 years. But am I embarrassed to ask this question? Do I not want to belabor the point? Is everyone going to say, ah, oh, stop wasting our... So in the same vein, I mean, how are you going to do implant dentistry? Well, there's 650 implant companies. I don't even know what you guys are talking about if I'm a GP and I'm not initiated. Then you have to do this bone graft thing. Oh, what do you do? Oh, you go online and order bone graft. They'll ship it to you. You go on the website... There's 12 types of bone. You can't even pronounce these words. And you feel inadequate. And you're like, I'm not going to, I don't even know, Graziano, I don't know what, cortical, I don't know what, you're, forget this. You know what? I'm not going to do this. And then you say, well, I can't buy implants. I can't even buy bone graft. I remember this thing about one wall, two wall defects, but I, I wasn't really paying attention because Perio was for losers. So, you know what? I'm not going to do this. <laughs> It's a good barrier, I'll tell you, to make sure that the market doesn't get flooded. But from the perspective of the GP, it really, I see, it really serves as an obstacle uh, as for why the uninitiated in their mind feel like, oh, this is going to be such a tremendous hurdle to cross. I don't know if I could do it. But the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the younger ones do graduate. Now there are certain requirements. Either you have to place one implant at least in dental school or you have to restore two of them. So they are getting into it. Yeah. And then it Maybe. becomes less scary because they're learning it along the way. Wow. You know, they've got to spend a lot of time practicing amalgams, which they'll never do after they graduate. So, you know, there's only so much time in, in clinical, uh, in the clinical practice to to get those right. implants in. You know, there's important there's stuff, important work to be done. <clears throat> the, uh, do you find that affects how people refer so they don't refer things that they could because they actually don't know that they're referable or 
does it mean I just refer everything, including stuff that is not particularly suitable? Uh, it depends. I think there's no one answer there. It really has to, you have to stratify the groups. There are, let's just call it the typical older dentist who is much more used to the, the way dentistry was done before implants was, uh, was popular or yeah. existent at all. Then you have the new dentists where they graduated last week and yeah. they're very much initiated. And in their mind, they're thinking, I am going to be doing these major veneer cases and I'm going to be doing uh, some minor ortho cases I and mean, I'm going to be doing peri per the implant cases. How so hard I'm, I'm going to be doing everything. Right, how, how hard could it be? be you know? like I saw some pictures. I saw yeah. some pictures. They told me where to buy the bone graft. I know how to pronounce mm -hmm. them. And that's not to mock them, because I'm the same way. You're, you know, yesterday someone posted the case and they said, oh, this, this looks so easy. And you're like, yeah, it always looks easy in the picture. And then you try to do it once and you're saying, I'm never going to do this. I work for one of the, I, I, I work in 11 uh, GP offices and I rotate uh, around in my calendar, my schedule, and I show up from time to time, like once every two weeks usually, and I do all their perio and implant procedures. So one of the guys I work for, he's about five years older than me, so I consider him in the in the young group and not like the older older style dentist. And he said, Dale, I took an implant course uh, in North Jersey. It's one of these very popular courses. Uh, I placed implants for two years or so. But what was I doing? I wasn't placing two, three implants a day. I was placing one implant a month. And I had to take out the whole machine and I had to remember everything and the muscle memory and all these things, whatever you want to call them. It just wasn't worth it. I, wa I didn't have this tremendous passion for the implants. I wanted to do it. I wanted to be able to do everything. You know, it's embarrassing to tell the patient, oh, I don't do that. And they don't understand because they say, well, my, my cousin, he's in California. He places implants, and you're like, well, so he went to go learn it. But he said, you know what? After doing this for two years, well, what did I do, 20 implants? Let me just hire you. I'll stick with the crowns. I'm doing one or two or three or five or ten of them a week, and that's my dentistry. And when you have a surgical component, I'll, you'll come in and you'll do it. Even though he said I took the course, I'm, I'm, I'm okay saying I'm not an expert and I don't need to be an expert and I'll leave it to you, and I'll do the other stuff. If I want to be able to work in an office with the doctor 65 and another office with so the guy is 55, another 45, and the other guy is younger than me, he, he's, he's 33, uh, I really need to tailor my approach to each person. And when I lecture, I could lecture to a room of, of 90 people, and there are 30 hygienists, and then they're all stratified in their experience and age and knowledge. And then there's uh, 25 general dentists. Some of them are placing implants. Others, you know, say, uh, I don't do this implant stuff. But I heard that you're giving a lecture, so I thought I might uh, come listen. And then there's, uh, you know, whatever number to get to 90, 30 or 40 more dentists who are specialists. And half of them are endodontists. And they say, I want to know about this implant stuff. I'm never going to do it. I'm not interested in doing it but I'm interested in understanding. So my approach is that really everything I lecture on, everything I teach, it's really not that I'm saying, if you wanna do soccer preservation better, come to my lecture and I'm gonna teach you how to do soccer preservation. Uh, I'm sure if you're doing it, you can come and pick up a lot of pointers and tips 
and go back. But my perspective is that everything I talk about, everything I lecture on is treatment planning. Because from the GP perspective, how do you refer to those specialists? How do you refer to me if you don't know what I'm doing? Because then sure. you talk to the patient, you say this, I meet the patient, I say that. The patient says, I'm lost. I don't, I don't know what's going on. I have to, in my mind, realize that they go to the general dentist. They've been there for the past six years or 12 years. Their wife goes there. Their sister-in-law who, who brought them into the practice, she goes there. Their, their kids go there. They know this general dentist. They trust him. I mean, if they don't trust him, then they switch general dentists. They like him. They like the front desk lady. They like the office manager. They're comfortable. But then that dentist says to them, basically, in other words, I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm going to send you to someone who does. And that makes them uneasy. And then they come to me, and I'm, 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 all, I'm all full of energy about this thing that their general dentist doesn't know what he or she's doing, so that's why he has to refer to me. And they say, okay, it sounds like you know what you're doing, but I don't know you. So they know them, but they don't know what they're doing. They, I sound like I know what I'm doing, but they don't know me. And how do you bridge that? So I, I think the best way is with open communication. There's a way to tell the patient in a very uh, <clears throat> delicate way that, oh, I can't, I can't be excellent at everything. You know, uh, what do they say? A jack of all trades, but a master of none. So the dentist says, listen, you may think of dentistry as there's a hole in your tooth. And, uh, and, I, and I, put, uh, I put a filling in it. And everybody, everybody knows the word filling, but there's a tremendous variation in the stuff we do and how we do it. I can't do 40 types of things. So I found this person and he either works on my office and you'll see him on Tuesday, or I'm going to send you to another office. And then this way you don't have to seem like vulnerable, like weak. And even though it may sound like obvious at your level, like, you're like, of course, this is what of course we should be doing. Some people are unaware. So I tell them and they say, huh? That's a good point, and that's now how I can be comfortable telling my patient, uh, you know, I read up about this. I've never done it. I've observed one or two of these <laughs> surgical procedures, but I'm going to send you to the person who does this all day, and I'm comfortable saying I don't do it, and I'm comfortable sending you to this guy because I know him well, and then that bridges the gap, and then when they show up in my office, I could, they could say, I don't know you, but my general dentist, he or she trusts you. And then I could take that trust and then add all the information I know. And I say, listen, I know this may seem scary. And I say these things. I say, I have surgery. It sounds like I'm taking out your gallbladder, right? And they, they shudder and they say, oh, yeah, I am very afraid. And I say, don't yeah. worry. I'll break it down. And yeah. The funny, part is that they, 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 the, the funny part is that they're probably more afraid of the dentistry than their gallbladder. You know, even though the other one is a more serious operation, it's not in your mouth. A mouth is a different place. It's... The mouth's not like other body parts. Maybe the eye, but even that's, you know, it, it, we downplay the mouth because it's our field and we're, you know, we're not classically real surgeons. You know, we're just dentists. But, right. But, but the, the patient's the, awake. The patient's well, in their mouth. And it's so I, sensitive. I mean, how many, how many body, body parts have that many sensory nerves or motor nerves for that matter? Like nothing. Right. The, in, nothing. The, in their mind, they're afraid of the, the needle and that... I mean, that's like the trope, the dental trope that I'm afraid of the needle. Uh, and then it just goes from there. I mean, you yeah. drip a little bit of anesthetic on their tongue, you're finished. You could put the implant in, cockeyed <laughs> or upside down. 
the patient is fine. You know, you just tell them I need to take X-ray films for, for four months and monitor this. They're like, good. But, but you drip anesthetic on their tongue, you're finished. They're like, I hate this guy. And well, then yeah, that maybe, maybe that maybe they uh, it wasn't the right type of anesthetic. Like, was it organically produced? And you know, did you speak to it right when it was getting done? You know, there's a lot of things to consider here. What type of glass was it? So uh, <clears throat> you're just playing lightly with the patient here. This is serious matters. What gets stripped on their tongue? So you know, the the. I do have a question, though, that I was thinking about. Who gives you the more difficult cases, the young guys who think they can do everything or the older guys who grew up in the era where, you know, dentists did dentistry and gum stuff got sent off to that periodontics thing? So because I, I don't work on a referral basis in the traditional sense, I don't have an office, right? I'm, yeah. I'm only in 10 or 11 offices. And I work directly with each GP in their office, with their patients, with their assistants, with their front desk. So almost none of the dentists I work with do what I do and then send me the harder case. They just don't do any of it. Uh, now, that being said, uh, two or three do of them will take... Do you try and show them how to do the boring things? No, I'm no, sorry, I said that wrong. I, I said that wrong. They'll be listening. They'll be listening. Uh, do you try and teach them how to do the simpler things? No, not at all. I want, I tell them that, uh, I, I try to initiate them into understanding how I do my implant dentistry, that I do mostly immediates so that I should take the tooth out and I should graft it because most often I'll be able to put the implant in. I said, if you're going to take the tooth out and graft it, then we're stuck waiting four or five months before I can put mm -hmm. the implant in. I'm not going to let you graft it in January, and then go in in February into your bone graft and screw an implant in. That's just not going to happen. So either I'm going to put the implant in when I see the patient in February, please don't touch it, don't take the tooth out, or if you're going to take the tooth out and graft it, then we're waiting till, till March or, or, or April. And sometimes they say, if I'm not going to graft it, we're going to lose the patient. We have to start the procedure, quote unquote, because then the patient feels like we're in it, we're involved, they started their payment plan, and figure out how to do the dentistry around the, the commercial aspect, the financial uh, considerations. Whereas others say, oh, I, oh, okay, I didn't know that. The other guy I had before you, he didn't do it that way. Okay, so let's, let's modify it. And that's, that, so that's mostly what I'm trying to impart to these general dentists. And the, and the funny part is that the socket grafting is not is not actually so easy. Like I know it's for you, it's routine, but to do really good socket grafting <laughs> that is giving you a predictable result when you go back to place an implant is that well, you know, you're talking earlier about the simple implant, and uh, I've been doing implants for a little while now, and. The more I do, the less simple ones there are. They're just, there's just not simple implants. Even where it's big fat bone, it's hardly ever simple. Like the bone is lower on the buccal side than the lingual side, or there's a lingual concavity, or the tissue is not right, or the mucogingival junction is high, or and on and on and on. So back, the only time I had simple cases was when I didn't know what I was doing. Exactly. The more we know, <clears throat> the less we know. <laughs> or the more we know, the more we know we don't know. 
Yeah. And yeah. It's, just... it's, it's almost impossible to explain to the person who doesn't know something what it is they don't know. Because mm-hmm. if you don't know, how do you know what you don't know? And then they laugh at you. Because they're like, why are you insulting me? Who do you think I am? I'm a dentist. I've been doing this right longer than you're alive. I know yeah, how to take yeah. teeth out. Don't tell me. And I don't mean to just make it sound like all these dentists are clowns and they're conceited and all they're interested in is money. I'm just saying, in a loose sense, they're like, you know, don't don't be. They think of the, the specialists as a jerk. You don't know how many offices I'm in. Where after I'm there for six months or a year, or I think the longest I'm in any one office now is bordering on five years. They say Rosenbach. Now we're now we're comfortable with you, but. I want you to know that when you first showed up, we were like, oh, no, another periodontist we have to deal with. They're such jerks. They think they know everything. Everything has to be perfect. If it's not exactly what they ask for, they shout. And we want to tell you, Rosenbach, we've never heard you shout. You don't insult the hygienists and the assistants. You don't insult me. You're not rough with the patients. We're not actually sure that you're a periodontist. Mm, Yes, you're lacking. You're lacking. I'm <laughs> lacking, and I say I'm sorry to disappoint you. And then they do laugh. Think, and then we- do you think the reason they don't think you shout is just because you speak loudly all the time? So like the, the you keep the bass level up, and then when you are shouting, they don't notice. No, I think that uh, <laughs> what, one of your questions, for example, was that you said you're not going to get to is how do you manage stress in your professional life? Yeah. And when I saw that, I was thinking, you know. I really don't have stress in my professional life. I take things very easy, uh, very easygoing. And that's what I meant by, yes, anyone who knows Dale knows that Dale is super particular, almost, almost to the point of annoyance. I like to call it persistence. Some people who don't know me like to call it annoyance. But I sense that the people who know me for a long enough time, they agree and they say, when we first met Dale, we thought he was annoying. But now we see that he's really just persistent because he has this on-off switch. He, he can be super like the front desk. They're wondering, man, he comes with this camera like it's a photo shoot well, and he has to take 100 pictures. But he is a normal guy. He, he's able to relate to the patients. He is able to c- take their concerns into consideration. But too often, the person who, let's say, can't switch off their particularism mm-hmm. Uh, they're not able to relate to the patient as a person. And all they could do is the surgery and they have no bedside manner. But that's not going to sell your case because the patient doesn't want to hear, okay, this guy's a real jerk. Uh, You won't be able to talk to him and it'll be very uncomfortable and awkward. But he does a really good surgery. So just sort of bite the bullet, go in, and then you'll come back to me, the general dentist, and I'll make sure everything's fine. That, That may have worked in the 70s and the 80s. But now, and in, and in want, neurosurgery. <laughs> okay, but now everybody, everybody wants to be able to relate to everyone. And if they show up and you're a jerk, they don't say to themselves, well, at least you're a good surgeon. They're like, this means you're not a good surgeon because part of being a surgeon is relating to the patient and talking to them. My so why, why do you think that you don't get stressed when you're at work? How do you keep so chill? Is it because you... One thing you said earlier was that you give yourself plenty of time. Do you think that's one yes. of the big reasons? Because I, I think that the number one stress in all of dentistry <coughs> is time pressure and more importantly, trying to do something 
based on the fee that you're paid rather than the amount of time it actually takes? I do not allow side booking. They like to put in these new offices when I start, they like to have three columns for me. And I say, I can only be in one place at one time. So fine, if there's a post op where I want to take <clears throat> one photograph, one radiograph, and, and snip three stitches, that'll take me all of four to six minutes, fine. You could double book it within the first 10 minutes of another surgery. So I go in, I get the patient numb, we already reviewed informed consent, and I have about five minutes, now I could pop into the other room. But please do not side book me the whole day. How am I supposed to leave the surgery? How am I supposed to do a consult and sell a case for five grand, for 10 grand, for 20 grand? I have to convince this patient, you know, what I was talking about before, that I know what I'm doing, even though I look like I'm 14 years old. Uh, they have no idea who I am. I have to convince them that this is not in a scam way, but in an appropriate way, this is what you need. And they say, what do you mean? It doesn't hurt. And I have to describe to them, okay, but you know, it bothers me. There's something called acute infection. There's something called chronic infection. We have to go through this. I have to quote unquote, sell the case and show them how this is appropriate. I can't do that if I'm spending five minutes with them and I'm popping in because they come and say, quick, your, your, your other patients here. They don't want to hear that. And I don't want to hear that. And I don't need stress. So one patient at a time, calm it down. And now I take pictures. That was definitely a good I mean, you say it every day. I don't read it anymore because I already know it. But I remember when you first said it, oh, pictures are the best, teacher. You think you're doing a good surgery? Wait till you take that one and a half millimeter stitch and you blow it up on the screen to three feet wide. And then you say, oh, that's what I did? Okay, I got to go back and do it do it again and do it better. And I don't want to be embarrassed next time when I show this picture. But I'm going to slow it down. And that's totally true. Uh, take, take do you pictures, enjoy it a lot camera. more? Do you I'm enjoy sorry? it a lot more when you do you enjoy your work a lot more when you take uh, photos and then review the quality of your work, or do you enjoy it less? I love it. I love it. I like being honest, and uh, I've been told that I'm too honest and I'm too. I don't know what the word is, self-deprecating or, or too, I make myself too vulnerable. I have to explain too many things and give seven rationales why I did something. I think that this is my strength. This is the, the weakness that exists between the lecturer and the lecturee, the, you know, mm -hmm. the lecture attendee. He's sitting there, she's sitting there, and oftentimes they say, look at this guy. He thinks he's all that. He thinks he's God's gift to surgery. He says, this is what I did, uh, and this is the way it is, and look at how awesome, and then the, here's a picture of my dog, and here's a picture of my beach house, and all the money I made doing the surgery that I did. <clears throat> I don't do that at all. I get up and I say, see this? Now, I didn't realize this while I was doing the surgery, but as I looked at the picture, I could have done this better. I should have done this. And you know what? This surgery happens to be from uh, a year ago. I don't even do this anymore. The next case will be something that I did uh, two weeks ago. I don't even have the post-op because uh, it just happened last week. I really wanted to show you the contrast between what I used to do and what I do now. Uh, I used to suture very differently. You know how I suture much better now? Because I saw um, Michelle Azer doing it on, face on, on Facebook. And I don't tell patients that I learned how to suture <clears throat> on Facebook because yeah, they I may get upset. Yeah. But I do tell the doctors, I do tell the doctors, uh, and 
sometimes they're blown away, particularly the ones who are the 50-year-olds and the 60-year-olds. I mean, the 25-year-olds, they're totally cool with learning how to do stuff on YouTube. I mean, they went to dental school, and the faculty member might have said, okay, we just reviewed this concept. Let's, let me show you a video of what I'm talking about. So this is how they were initiated into dentistry. Sure. The yeah. older surgeons, the older dentists are like, what? what? Where's the textbook with the black and white pictures and the mm-hmm. person's finger without a glove pointing to the thing we're talking about. Well, actually, even better, because you, instead of having pictures, you had to have things called plates, you know, plate 3.1. Plate I, I think 3, that, and then the carousel. Yeah, the carousel. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so, now we're talking, and then the, the slide has to actually have a real slide, not, not a keynote one, a real slide that gets jammed. You know, that no lecture right. is complete, you know. It's, it's and I, I, hope no one, I hope no one listening is thinking I'm here to say, I'm a young guy and we know everything because we have the internet and you well, guys. I, mean, I think it's quite true that you and I know what we know and we don't know what we don't know. It, I, I have done this for 20, <laughs> I've had my same office for 20 years. So I, I see all of my failures that actually come back to me, but obviously not all the ones that go elsewhere. So I, I still think my success rate is much higher than it really is. Uh, <clears throat> occasionally one of the other dentists in town is kind enough to, uh, let me know about something. No, I, I mean that genuinely because you, you often don't know that things right. have failed and you, you have this great plan that you, and if, you, if no one tells you, then you keep to doing it. <clears throat> but the, uh, I was recently learning new things about just the initial incision and then the suturing, which to me made me feel like I was an absolute beginner. Uh, like not that I, you know, I have been doing surgery for so many years, 15, well, soft tissue surgery, I started in 2007. uh, And to be fair, there wasn't a lot of courses for soft tissue surgery in 2007. So, yeah, but I was doing it then. And for all of this time, making really basic mistakes with the things like the initial incision and the suturing, which really... We were talking earlier about how certain things are much more important than you think, and actually everything's important all the time. Everything's right. if you if your incision's exactly. not right, then it's hard to suture. Everything gets hard from there on. Right. If I could jump in and go back to that story of the resident who said, Oh, Dr. Rosenbach, I wanted to tell you the, the most intriguing and inspiring <clears throat> part of the whole surgery was the last three minutes when I thought we're just putting putting uh, stitches in because we can't leave let the guy go home with a hole in his mouth. And instead, you made it part of the procedure. I mean, mm. that definitely applies to the incision <laughs> design, to the scalpel blade, which one you're using. People mm-hmm. say, what? What's a scalpel blade decision? Just put the scalpel blade on. And I'm like, no, no, there's three different types, and there's a whole rationale. And it's like, man, you are way too particular. Just chill out there. Oh, my gosh. But if you're able to hold on for five minutes, and listen and hear me out, you may say, huh, that's a good point. I never thought about that. I never realized. Let me try it. And once they do, it's a world of a difference. And then they're able to only then appreciate, huh, this is something I didn't know that I didn't know. But now that I know it, I could see how no one else appreciates it because they are five minutes you know, before me in the education. I'm five minutes ahead of them in, in, in learning. 
And mm -hmm. just yeah. that five minutes of hearing about, <laughs> do you make the incision mid-palatally? Do you go all the way to the tooth? Do you go back into the sulcus? Do you make it papilla sparing? I mean, if you have some scalpel skills, it, it takes 10 minutes to discuss this, to incorporate it, to assimilate it, and then to do it. It's not like, it's not like the biggest, biggest thing in the world, but it mm -hmm. could really change your surgery. And if you change a little bit of how you suture, you change a little bit of what you suture. And you, you know, I'm, I, I'm a big fan of Vicryl. Uh, I know there's this whole monofilament thing and people will, will, will berate me for using Vicryl, but I don't see troubles. I love it. But if you're doing surgery, for example, with chromic gut, which is what most every dental residency surgery, dent, general dental is using, it's like, you know, chromic gut is not good enough. And if it's not that, they're using silk. I mean, every dental student graduates to New, uh, New York Dental School or United States Dental School knowing, oh, there's resorbable and non-resorbable. So if you want it to stay, you use silk. And if, and if it's okay to dissolve by itself, use chromic gut. You cannot do these advanced sutures with chromic gut. It's, not, it's just not going to work properly. It won't hold. <laughs> it, you can't make your knots. And it dissolves before the patient gets on the bus after surgery. Yeah. So well, of yeah. course you can't do surgery. Yes, you know? and it also gives you surgical depression trying to use chromic gut. You know, you try, try the second knot. <laughs> the second knot breaks, and then you, you, want to, you want to sit down and have a little cry. So, so uh, where do you teach? Uh, I think I looked at one of your schedules once, and you were teaching every weekend for like forty-two weeks to the year in a row. Is this true, or is this just a rumor? No, no, no. That's that's a, a terrible rumor. <laughs> uh, I used to teach, as I said, I used to lecture like uh, every Monday and Friday morning when I was uh, teaching in the residency. And then it was too much for the residents because they had to get there too early because of me. Otherwise they started nine o'clock and they had to get there eight o'clock. So I, I ratcheted it down to once a week, but now I'm not doing that anymore. And now I do CE lecturing and I fly around. I'm very fortunate that the United States is so large and I can stay within my, my country and not have to switch currencies and uh, passport and customs and all that stuff. Yeah, and that's still terribly have, difficult stuff. Terribly difficult. Terribly uh, difficult. I hate. Like I to, hate traveling. You I, have to pull your credit card out. <laughs> right. You have to pull out and the I, same credit card you use in every other country and remember that it's yours. But but I I really enjoy lecturing and so I and so I travel even though I hate it in order to lecture and I oh. go to these different places. Uh, I've been across the whole country. I've been to California. I've been to Canada. Four, five, six times. Oh, when you come uh, to Australia, we'll have you down. Hopefully, and uh, but yeah, yeah, and really it's not really lecture. travel. It's just it's like time travel because you cross the time zone. So. I hear. <laughs> but, sure uh, I like getting country. out of. I like getting out of New York because there is this New York mentality, and I don't mean to uh, blast the New Yorkers because I am a New Yorker, but I will say that I think I'm a reformed New Yorker. I mean, sometimes I'm lecturing in New York. I was once lecturing, and there was a guy with a laptop out. And he, was, I over, he didn't realize I was the lecturer because I was there early, and I was helping to set up because it was my study group. So he probably thought I work at the restaurant or I'm just whatever, one of the staff yeah, members. Yeah. Food and beverage, so, food and beverage for sure. So he was telling <laughs> the other guy, I have to set up my laptop because there's a webinar I'm taking. And the other guy said, uh, what? What? the lecture where he says, no, 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 I'm going to be here 
and I'm going to be on the webinar because I need to get my AGD credits in. So this way I could take two lectures at once. And when I heard that, I was blown away. This guy is going to be taking two CE courses simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Wow. That mm-hmm. only happens in New York. You know, when I no, go to actually, Texas, when I, oh, it happens in Australia. It doesn't, no. When I go to Baltimore. Look, there's, there's people, look, what? maybe, you know, the, the reality is <coughs> people like you and me who are, we actually really enjoy what we do. And we found a way to make our job kind of like a hobby or, you know, something that we enjoy beyond just the fact that it's a job. But there's a lot of people in dentistry who I don't think do, and they just getting getting education is a chore for them. So, right next so time, next next time you're going to have three laptops. <laughs> three. So I really enjoy getting out of New York because even yeah. as close as Baltimore, which is uh, whatever a three-hour drive, but certainly yeah. when I fly it's quite eight different. hours away or ten hours away, the people they're they're hungry. They really want to learn because they just don't have this New York mentality where. Every minute I'm spending doing this, I'm not doing that, and I need to rush, and I need to get out. Uh, and furthermore, um, uh, I guess they just have less access, maybe. It's just an access thing. In New York, all the big shots come here. This is where all the big meetings are. And sure. if you go to Winnipeg, I mean, <clears throat> it's not necessarily in the sticks, right? It is a big city. It's the largest city in all of the province, but... Okay, they don't have the tremendous access to all these, all these lectures and all these uh, updates. Mm-hmm. So when they get someone to come, they say, "Okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to listen." Uh, and, and I sometimes find it they have less. Sometimes they have less specialist support too, and so they actually do need to know more if they want to treat right, their they, patients. Exactly, that's a really good point. I remember when I was oh. first speaking; I think it was with uh, you or Thorpe. I forgot, but one of you was like, "Yeah, the closest oral surgeon is 300 kilometers away." Mm, yes. <laughs> And I'm yeah. like 300 kilometers in New York. It's 300 inches. You know, the closest oral surgeon is is the next door down. And if he's sick, then across the hall is another oral surgeon. And then if you get up for the wrong floor in the elevator and you didn't even realize it, there's two oral surgeons downstairs. So if we're not if we're not careful, there's going to be periodontics and oral surgery tension going on in a moment. <laughs> right. We want tension-free, <laughs> tension-free. Tension-free closure. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so when you teach, are you, what's your style? So do you teach? My style. Complicated I, stuff or do you just, or do you just like to teach a lot of detail so about I, quite simple things? Uh, I like to incorporate three, three things. One is my style, one is my content and one is my, I didn't realize I would be asked this question, so I didn't come up with the third name of the third category, but we'll get there. One, my style is super light. It's a tremendous comedy show. I think I'm very funny. People must agree because they keep inviting me back. But I recognize that this stuff can get very dry and very boring. And even if it's not, I certainly know how to make it very boring. I mean, two millimeter probing depth and frication involvement. And let me show you this knot I want to make in the suture. And let me show you how if you pull your hand to the left, it'll be a granny knot. But if I do it this way, it'll be a surgeon's knot. But if you do this, it's a square. I mean, my gosh, just get on with it and show me how to make more money. Like some people, they're like, what are, what are we talking about here? So everything is a joke. 
people come over to me routinely and say, that was the funniest lecture. Someone once wrote, you're like the love child of Woody Allen and Jerry Seinfeld. That was my favorite comment anybody ever made. I remember being in a listening to your lecture, which was indeed quite funny. And then one of the feedback comments was that you told too many jokes. I think wasn't it? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> you're supposed I to be. You weren't boring enough. You weren't boring enough, young man. Right. Right. I contrast that with <laughs> an intense, and in like not even intense. That's too low. A super intense approach to the data and to the what we're doing. I really don't deviate at all. I mean, I've been to lectures. I almost can't go to a lecture anymore because they literally spend the first half hour telling you about just everything in their life. Let me explain to you how I got here. I went to school. What year I graduated. You know who was in my class? I don't care. I mean, yeah, I spend. I don't care about one, that. I spend one minute on my first slide, and. Uh, I say, I'm Dr. Rosenbach, I'm a diplomat. I went to school here just because people have camaraderie. They wanna know, oh, well, I went to Columbia. Do you know this guy? They come over during the break. But after one minute of introduction, the second slide is, okay, clinical ramifications or critical considerations. And I'm already in the lecture. And I love it when I'm lecturing and people are not texting and mm. they're not talking and their head is up, but their phone is on the table because they were texting as soon as I started, they figured, all right, we have 30 minutes before he gets mm -hmm. to anything, and then I do this. And then I crack a joke, and people come over and they tell me, we mm -hmm. cannot not pay attention because it's mm -hmm. like a comedy show, and if we mix mm -hmm. your sentence that you say, we're going to miss the, the punchline, we're waiting for the next punchline, but you trick us and you give us dental information. But then it's funny. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not getting up there and telling jokes about... Uh, you know, irrelevant things. All my jokes are like dental related. I'm, I'm self-deprecating and I mock perio a little bit and I riff on the GP perio problem because GPs are doing all the implants and perio doesn't like it. And I riff on the oral surgeons who hate the periodontist. And I, it, it's fun, it's fun. And I make sure I apologize mm -hmm. if anybody doesn't know me and they didn't get my joke and they thought I was actually being sharp and biting. I tell them that I'm just being sarcastic for the, <laughs> you know, in, in a friendly you know, manner. You, you, can't, you can't back down, you know, like you can't explain away if you're well, sharp and biting. You just, need to, is, you just need to own yeah. that. Or if you're sharp and biting, you take that. So, uh, <coughs> so I thought... I, I have been in one of your lectures and, and uh, you are indeed a pretty funny fellow. So. Thank you. So Look, I, I think uh, this, uh, this gets the job done. I think pay, people show up to the lecture and they're... Their, their expectation is that this is going to be boring. I'm not going to learn anything. And anything I do learn is going to be irrelevant because you're going to be telling me about some paper that was published. What, what are papers for? I just do this because, you know, the doctor told me to do this in dental school. And then my friend saved some money by doing that. And then my other friend told me he does that. While we were golfing, he told me. And then she said this. And so I changed it up a little bit. But you want to tell me about a paper, about... Uh, whereas I spice it up and I get it exciting and then people are blown away saying, I didn't know that learning could be fun. I didn't know that we could spend 30 minutes on, on, on three slides and talk about suturing or how to, which spoon to put the bone graft in with and then I'd be taking notes and then I'd, I'd want to come and hear you again. Uh, I, I think this is unique. Uh, I haven't seen it and therefore I do it and I play to my strengths, and I hope people enjoy it.
Uh, I have a question for you. Which one do you put more effort into when you're getting the slides ready? Uh, a lecture to dental students or a lecture to put on Facebook? <laughs> Which is a tougher crowd. <laughs> well, the Facebook is harder because I have to write it all out. You know, yeah. uh, I've been, I haven't posted in a while. It's not because it's taking me a year and a half to get this, this thing together. Oh, look, this next been, case will be amazing. <laughs> but I have been working on it for at least three weeks. And someone's going to say, what? And I say, I mean, when you see how much text I put in, and that's why I gently try to emphasize, <laughs> you'll see when the people post cases and they're complex. I mean, they put a little bit of work, they put a table on, and I'm saying, what is this table even showing? And I say, if you don't mind, could I ask? these six very pointed questions about what you've shown. Why did you do this? Why, why did you not do the other thing? We all know that there's three ways to do this, let's say. Mm -hmm. Did you speak as to why you chose A and not B or C? Did you guess? Uh, does, it, does it not matter? This is just your preference. And I think this is, this is golden. This is, of course, a picture is worth a thousand words, but people sometimes forget that words are also worth words. And mm -hmm. just looking at a picture, if you're, especially if you're uninitiated, if you don't know what you don't know, how do you know what you're missing in the picture? The person mm -hmm. doing it is, has the best vantage point to say, see what I did here? Uh, we all know, or if you don't know, now you know that I could have done this or that. Let's discuss for a minute or two. They don't have to spend three weeks typing up, you know, like I do, but to put up 68 pictures and the only text is left <clears throat> x this is the x-ray i mean come on man i could i know this is the radiograph you know not to mock them but yeah. say something uh, like why did you take a bite wing instead of a periapical why did you take a periapical why did you not take a vertical bite wing maybe it's just as simple as i would love to but i couldn't find the the xcp device all right mm -hmm. There's a lot more things time. like there's a lot more things in dentistry like that than we would like to think. Uh, you know, why did you do it this way? Why did you use a regular luxator instead of the fine one? Because the fine one was still at the hospital where I had a general anaesthetic yesterday and hadn't come back from sterilization. And this is a true exactly. story from today for me. Just have actually today, the day when they they left, I did a general anaesthetic earlier in the week and all the instruments are sitting there. And uh, then today this patient comes in for a decoronated premolar. And it just happens to be a lower first premolar in a sick, nearly 70-year-old male with quite dense bone that the root alone was 24 and a half millimetres long. It was not a good day not to have all my instruments. <laughs> okay, so sometimes it really is like that. But even if it is, you can comment on, this is what I did now. You know, sometimes they'll say, I had to do this, the patient couldn't afford it, or the patient refused. <laughs> Okay, but that doesn't mean we can't have a discussion as to why in general there are three options and why in this case, even though I didn't do option B because the patient refused, why option B would be the mm. ideal for this case. You know, mm. yeah. try to learn in a maximalist sort of way, even if you're limited because of the case. And I think this harkens back to dental school. If we yeah. all remember dental school, the professors would say, okay, what are your treatment options? And you're like, patient has no money. That's why they come to the dental school. So we're mm -hmm. going to do this. 
And you're like, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Every yeah. patient, every site, every tooth is a golden opportunity to discuss the four treatment options or the three or the seven or whatever it yeah. is. It doesn't mean that you have to, uh, you know, be too particular and bore us all about stuff that you're never going to do. Because the yeah. point here is not to discuss what we're doing here. The point is, you know, you're a dental student. How many cases are you really going to have? Five yeah. of these, ten of these. <clears throat> think you're going to be. You think you're going to be a, a good dentist because you did this seven times? No way. You have to treat every case as though it's so expansive that you went through all the options. If you really review the treatment options seven times, but you did it in such depth all the times, then even though you only had one or two of these type A cases and one or two of these type B, oh, you were able to address type A, type B all seven times or all 20 times. And then it's a much richer experience when mm -hmm. you finish, when you graduate, when you head on into practice. And then when you actually have that other case that you, let's say, didn't have or only did once, you, you learned about it 10 times, even though you only did it twice. So I, think a, I, a, I think a big issue is that when you're discussing a case, you actually have a lot of confidence and that confidence comes from a belief in your own skill. And this, this is something I see very often that, that the particularly less experienced dentists who don't truly believe in their own skill, they have difficulty recommending a treatment because somewhere inside they don't actually believe that they can do it well anyway. Uh, I had a lady today and she's going, so she wanted me to tell her that doing a five surface composite was get, that was going to be better than the last one, which had fallen apart in two years. And I said, look, I said, if you go to the cardiac surgeon and say heart valves are too expensive, it doesn't change the fact that that's the treatment that you need and that doing some other treatment that won't work is not an option, you know. Sometimes you just need to be confident and stick to what it is you should do, even if it is expensive. Sometimes I agree. you be confident or you don't do it. Well, I have a tremendous luxury that I am a specialist and that I can make a lot of money doing something that's going to take a lot of time and I don't have to rush, but I'm able to limit myself to 10 things. Mm -hmm. If you're a general dentist and you say, I don't do fixed, you're giving up a lot. If you're yeah. a general dentist and you say, eh, I don't do molar endo, you're giving up a lot, not just a lot of money, but you're giving up a lot of dentistry because mm. are you also giving up on the post and core? Are you also giving up on the crown? Are you So then you start splitting up the services on a single tooth and then you have to make three referrals to different practitioners, I mean, mm. it's tough. And I'm not recommending that the general dentist does everything. Try to stick with what you do better. And if you know that you're not nearly as good at this or that, you know, refer out or get someone to come into your office. But that's my whole life. I'm mm. able to limit myself to just the, the, the 10 things that a periodontist does. And even within perio, I could say, you know what? I don't like this, so mm. I'm not going to do it. And no yeah. one, no one criticizes me for it. Sure. And that, that's my, that's the beauty. I, I have a tremendous luxury uh, in that sense. And I really enjoy it because then I end up doing the same thing over and over, not in a boring way, not in a repetitive, in a bad way, but in a repetitive and good way. I've gotten so quick and so good at the 
whatever, six or eight things that I do, uh, you know, I, I really enjoy it. And it becomes, it becomes uh, sort of like an unconscious, what is it called? Unconscious uh, excellence. Yeah. I forgot the, the four scales. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm constantly trying to achieve the best results and I'm really able to see how well I'm doing and if I'm improving because I do these things so routinely. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you say, oh, let me, let me incorporate this new type of suturing and see how it works. You're never going to see how it works if you do it once a week. I mean, that will yeah. take forever. By the time you, yeah. you figure out what, what, whether you're doing it, you already changed again because it's been so long. But yeah. if I'm suturing three <laughs> or four times a day and I'm working four days a week, in a matter of a month, I could say, wow, that new thing I incorporated because I saw it on Ripe, you know, Ricardo said something or uh, Dr. Azer did something and he says, I used to do this. I no longer do that. And I say, let me try that. In a month, I can figure out, ah, it's not working for me. Or, wow, this is the best thing ever. I feel like I just graduated dental school yesterday and I never knew anything. How could I have been practicing at all not yeah. suturing this way? Yeah. So I, I have that luxury and I, uh, I, I very much appreciate it. And I, I don't take it for granted. Uh, not everybody has it. That's one of the drawbacks of being a general dentist and saying, oh, I do suturing and I do extractions and I do implants. But okay, when you get down to it, when are you doing it? Once a week, once every two weeks? Yeah. You're, not yeah. able to, you're not able to grasp that and, and capture that benefit. Yeah, it's, it's uh, even, I find in general dentistry that even if you can do something to a high specialist level, it takes longer. So, so you can either not do it as well or you can do it more slowly. You, you, you can never – it's extremely difficult to achieve the same level at the same speed as someone who's done it three times more often. It's just – that's the power of repetition. So. <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, I, I see quite a consistent theme when I, I've talked to a few people now and, and I noticed that a lot of their comfort, their enjoyment and their uh, – beautiful outcomes that they get in their in their area of dentistry they've chosen comes from restriction so not trying to do everything or not trying to do things they don't like or not trying to do things too quickly it's it's a discipline over their environment rather than it not just the procedure but controlling the environment around you so that that you can do whatever it is that you like and and Often we just focus on the procedure alone, not the <clears throat> not everything around us that that makes us do good and enjoy what we do. I agree, Dale. I'm going to have to go to bed soon, so thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed this little catch up, and uh, it's been a while since we had a good talk. It was, uh, I think, Las Vegas last time we caught up, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, you're as lively online as you were in person. So it's very good. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on The Ripe Podcast. We've teamed up with mentors from around the world to offer you a growing library of high-quality online educational lecture recordings and resources. Visit our Academy website, www.restoringexcellence.com.au forward slash academy and become a premium member today.
Become better at dentistry and be sure to tune in in two weeks' time for our next episode of The Ripe Podcast.